Dumb Like It Hot, Hades Town, Pretty Woman, Dear Evan Hansen, Kiki Boots. These are just a few of the plethora of Broadway shows this prolific producer has produced. Buckle on up, theater fans, as we discuss the magic of old Broadway. Welcome to the Motivation Show podcast, and get ready to be inspired, motivated, and achieve massive success. And now, your host, the mayor of motivation, Eli Marcus. Our guest today is a prolific producer of the current Broadway musicals, Some Like It Hot. The Neil Diamond musical, A Beautiful Noise, and the play, Pictures from Home, with one of my favorites, Nathan Lane, and upcoming shows like Back to the Future. Welcome to the Motivation Show, Hunter Arnold. Thank you for having me, my friend. Appreciate it. Well, I'm excited to have you because I keep seeing your name on all these incredible shows. (laughs) What influenced you early on to love theater and eventually become a prominent Broadway producer? It's so interesting that uh, I almost can't remember a time where theater wasn't my focus or in my life. I do. I remember being three years old. My dad took me to see Sandy Duncan in Peter Pan. Oh, yes. And there was just something about it. And I insisted I was probably too small to really be at the theater. I insisted that I had to go meet her. And so we went and stood out in the rain in the alleyway, waiting, waiting for her to come out. Of the Is stage. that a stage door to Johnny, right? Is that what they call yes, that? Yes, that's exactly right. And, and I just remember, not only was I so blown away by the show, I thought it was incredible that just this transformation of reality happened live and in front of me. But she was the nicest human being possible. She talked to me for you know, three or four minutes. I was just a little guy. And it just left an indelible mark. And by the time I was six... I was forcing the neighborhood kids to do shows in my backyard and making their parents give me a quarter to get through the back gate to see the shows. And I guess I was a producer before I even understood what that meant. So here we are many years later, and it's still, as my niece likes to say, uh, I still get to play story time, dress up with my friends as a job, and and you don't have any complaints out of me for that. (laughs) Well, I'm glad that Sandy was so accommodating (laughs) and definitely got you that uh, theater bug. Speaking of bugs, you know... (laughs) Uh, pun intended, how has the uh, pandemic changed things? And how do you maintain optimism when things look so bleak at the time and uh, we are still not, you know, really entirely out of the woods? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think I think the fact that we've made it through this holiday season, the start of the cold season, I mean, obviously we have a little bit more cold weather for the next couple of months and haven't had a major impact like we did the year we came back last year when we had the sort of Omicron wave that hit us right at the holidays, which was really painful for the industry, um, is a good sign. What it tells you is a couple of things. Obviously, COVID's not going anywhere. It's a thing we need to learn to live with, not not try to eradicate. And it tells you that the industry's figured out things like coverage and understudies and testing and all of all of that stuff. So while we're not through it, and certainly tourism is going to take a little while to get all the way back to where it is. International tourism is really just starting to come back. Um, I think we've largely figured out how to coexist with this being a part of our world. When it comes to the actual pandemic happening back in March of 2020, uh, it was wild. And, And I think that probably like most people, you know, I spent the first, it was the first two weeks where you just thought it was going to blow over. 
And then when it became clear that this was a durable thing, you know, I spent like a solid three or four weeks feeling really sorry for myself and my industry and my peers. And then we did what theater people do, which is you get on with it. And, you know, we moved things to streaming and we started working on a bunch of development. I mean, my office, my staff, we were probably more busy during COVID in a lot of ways because we had our regular developmental work happening. And we also had a ton of stuff that was mission-based to sort of keep the industry moving and take care of our own and, you know, a lot of charitable projects that came up during that time. So, you know, when, you, when you're busy and you're around creative people, the problems get thrown your way all the time. This was a huge one. It certainly wasn't pleasant and it will take us some time to recover all the way, but the theater always figures it out. So here we are. And really it's, it's sort of paved the way for a whole new generation of work. You know, I think Broadway is taking bigger risks than it did pre-COVID because, you know, we we now realize that, you know, you can survive nearly anything. And that was certainly the longest absence that Broadway's ever had uh, since I've been in the business. I'm really true, truthfully, the, the entire history of the industry. So, you know, we're back and figuring it out and taking it day by day. Well, I'll tell you, Hunter, you know, it's interesting how through some of the greatest adversity in life, some of the greatest things actually happen as a result. And to watch Broadway bounce back from literal, I mean, just uh, stagnation where you just couldn't do anything. Nobody was employed. It looks so bleak. And to just move on from that and figure things out and now be back to a level where shows are packed. I mean, obviously, we're going to some of the January doldrums that we often do every single year. Uh, but we've had shows literally where you, uh, you know, just uh, have to book in advance to to get some of those tickets. Uh, we're just they're just sold out. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, a credit to people like yourself. So what I wanted to, you know, ask you is, you know, produce as many shows as just about anyone on Broadway. <laughs> Your name's everywhere, you know, and it has been said that what about only one in five shows actually turn a profit? First of all, Hunter, is that true? And regardless, the odds are stacked against you. So why do you produce Broadway shows? <laughs> um, that's a really good question, right? Uh, usually it's my therapist that asks me that. But <laughs> answered in a public forum today. Uh, it, it's closer to one in four shows. So it's between one in four and one in five. It kind of depends on the year and one whatnot. But the thing that people often miss about the industry is that Broadway is, is really the start of a piece of IP's life cycle. It's not the end. And so it's not necessarily about having to make money or even having to make all of your money with the Broadway production. You've got touring that happens after that. You've got licensing that happens after that. You've got the international marketplace that happens after that. And so these things have a really long trickle-down effect, very long tail, very long life cycle. And in fact, sometimes shows that don't do particularly great on Broadway, uh, you know, become juggernauts in many other ways. I, you know, I produced a, a musical version of Anastasia, which was, I would say, fair to middling on Broadway from, from an economic uh, outcome standpoint. We ran for two years, so it was a good, respectful run, but we were never printing money in any given week. Uh, I think we ended the Broadway run. Maybe we made back 80% of our money. We didn't recoup, but it was it was close. You know, a lot of people would look at that as like, wow, that was a seven year journey from start to finish and you lost 20%. And that sounds like a terrible business to be in. We've had international productions in Japan, in Madrid, in, you know, all over the world at this point. Our tour uh, was out on the road for three and a half years. There's still a non-equity version of the tour happening now. We're about to do London uh, in an upcoming season. 
And so that Broadway production, which closed having lost money, is now well into profit and has many, many more years of sort of all of those other activities which pay licensing and royalty back to the Broadway company. So the business makes sense on a on a holistic scale. But when you simply refine it to Broadway, which is deeply competitive, very expensive, uh, you know, it's in a city where the taste levels and expectations of the audience are super high. It's 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 a tough game, you know, but uh, it's also a really fun game and it matters. You know, storytelling to change the world is a thing that I've sort of dedicated my life to. And I think, you know, it's no different than a lot of really high performance jobs. Like, you know, you, you're the world's greatest baseball batter if you're hitting 333%, right? So you're still failing two out of three times, but you're making $20 million contracts. It's no different in the arts. It's tough to really do well on an individual basis, but it's, you can certainly build a career out of it and and your career is going to be, you win some and you lose some. So besides having you Jackman in your show, <laughs> what do you look for when deciding to produce a show? Do you have any specific criteria or formulas that you, that guide you? It, it sounds so silly, but the question that we ask ourselves at my office is, you know, we, we do a lot of group meetings. Every, the, our entire staff is involved in every decision we make to greenlight a show. Um, kind of everybody gets a voice in that process. It's not me just sitting in an ivory tower making a call. And really, the only question we ask ourselves is, does this story deserve to be told? And are these the right people to tell this story? And that that it sounds simplistic. It's a more complicated combination of questions than 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 one might think. And if something deserves to be told, meaning we believe that it can have an impact on the audience that that is needed in the world. And that could be as simple as doing something super commercial that will introduce a younger generation to the live theater. It doesn't always have to be hyper mission driven or about social activism. We do all of those shows as well. But it's it's a broad question that does the story deserve to be told. And then the second thing is, do we believe that the people that we're going to support telling it, the creatives, the writers, the the uh, the designers, the the directors, are these people? The, do they understand this story? Are they are they going to put something up there that's world class? And then you go do your work, and it becomes up to the audience. And sometimes, and by the way, these things take an average of six and a half years, seven years for a, for a new musical. So you can't time your entry. You don't know when you're going to be ready. You don't know what the state of the world is going to be uh, by the time the show is baked you really do have to trust that if you make something beautiful, it will find its audience. Sometimes it finds that audience on Broadway. Sometimes it finds that audience years later in high school productions and has a totally different life than what you expected for it, but an important and beautiful life nonetheless. And if you're touching people with the stories that you believe in, you know, that's doesn't get much better than that. So I just saw some like it hot last week. And boy, is that a crowd pleaser? I'm telling you, you know, <laughs> every single person was up on their feet after that show. Of course, you take a uh, a iconic uh, movie like that with uh, Tony Curtis and Marilyn Monroe and you put some changes and twists in there. Uh, so what was the thinking behind taking an iconic musical and giving it uh, the current twist that it has? Well, I think that that. You know, the Schuberts, who are the largest uh, theater owners in, in the city, decided that they wanted to do that project. They had the rights to it. They were at a partnership with MGM. Casey Nicolo, who's a sort of genius uh, director, came on to the project. Um, this is all before I was uh, involved in it. And I think everybody believed that they wanted 
to prove that sort of a big golden era musical could still happen today. What, you know, a true singing and dancing extravaganza sets that delight in costumes that are, um, you know, that sort of has gone out of vogue on Broadway, except for revivals. And people were asking the question, why can't we do this with a new, a new product? And then what happened, the reason I originally got involved was, you know, they took a look at the story and the story could have been easily interpreted as sort of a no longer viable men in dresses as a joke trope. And everybody involved thought that the story had a lot more meaning than that. And so they had picked Matthew Lopez to be the book writer. And Matthew and I worked for years together on a play called The Inheritance, which is one of the more artistically and emotionally rewarding projects that I've ever had anything to do with. And Matthew kind of said, hey, you know, let's only do this thing if we can make it relevant today. And ironically, there's not giant changes to it. It, it, it simply is taking the humanity of what these characters are going through and who these characters are and putting it into a modern day context. And so, you know, it's so interesting. I love to stand at the back of that theater and watch the audience watch it because you've got young people who are very politically active and all about gender dynamics and bringing those kinds of politics into sort of the present time. And then you have the older generations who this is all sort of new territory for, and, and that's pronouns are, 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 are difficult, even for the most well-meaning people, you know, my husband's 78 year old grandmother, you know, meets some of my friends that use different pronouns. There's no desire to disrespect those people, but it is an adjustment that she has to make from 78 years of, of sort of mentality. And I watch, this is why I love theater and particularly why I love musical theater. I watch it act like a spoonful of sugar because you are watching this. There's, there's no one gets on the soapbox. No one's wagging their finger at you about what's right to believe or wrong to believe. You are just being totally entertained. But by the end of that show, no matter what you came in with, the character that is dealing with identities surrounding their, their gender, you love that person. You just saw them being that person for two and a half hours. And so when the sort of contemporary twist, if you want to call it that, is introduced, it isn't a political topic, which, by the way, it shouldn't be in real life. It's just a human topic. It's not about a community. It's about a person's experience. And it doesn't matter what age or location or income level or gender an audience member is. If the human can win people over, then the human can make people stretch what their expectations are. Oh, powerful. People grow. <laughs> yes, I like that. Uh, so you currently have a play uh, out there uh, in previews at Studio 54, of course, one of the more famous, iconic uh, theaters. Uh, called Pictures from Home, and one of my favorite Broadway actors. You actually have a a, a, a trio <laughs> of uh, great performers, uh, Nathan Lane, Danny Burston, who I saw in uh, Moulin Rouge. Uh, I saw him as Tevye in, uh, in Fiddler. I saw him in South Pacific over Lincoln Center. You have Zoe Wanamaker. So tell us a little bit about that show. I mean, first of all, uh, any time... Jeffrey Richards, who uh, is is the lead producer on that project and a dear friend of mine, anytime somebody calls you and says, uh, I've got a show and it's Danny, Nathan, and Zoe signed up, <laughs> you really don't even ask what the show is. Exactly. I mean, like, honestly, your job is to say, what do you need for me to help you get this thing off the ground, right? You know, it, it, it's, it's such an iconic trio. It's based on um, 
the the underlying content pictures from home um, is a sort of well-known photography slash essayist um, uh, title from from about 15, 18 years ago. It's a really touching human story, but it also lets these three, honestly, like titans of theater, let loose and do what they do best. You know, I, I, this is uh, my third time working with Nathan. I mean, Danny and Zoe are amazing as well. But I think every, Nathan has this thing where everybody expects something from him, right? I mean, it's you go see Nathan Lane in a comedy and you're like, this better not. He's be funny without even trying to be funny. <laughs> but, but I have to tell you what people don't understand about Nathan, which is why he works so well with the other two who are sort of known as these consummate actors that, you know, can transform into any character. And 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 I don't think are aren't aren't necessarily people that you immediately think comedy, right? I mean, Danny is has played every role under the sun. There was actually a really funny thing at the Tony Awards a few years ago, which is during one of the it's always the best stuff happens in the commercial breaks, by the way, always. <laughs> and they put a, a film package together that was every role that Danny has played on Law and Order over the years. And it literally was like Danny as a lawyer, Danny as a judge, Danny as a rapist, Danny as a father. <laughs> like, so you have these people that are known as these sort of like consummate transformative actors. And then you have Nathan Lane, who's known as this genius comedian. But what people don't realize about Nathan is he is one of the most brilliant theatrical technicians you will ever meet. There, nothing happens by accident. He's not just a funny man. He's a, a brilliant, insightful reader of humanity. He knows what people will feel and he's constantly tinkering. So he actually dovetails really well with these sort of technique driven actors. And yet when you watch it from the audience, it just looks like Nathan selling you a, a, a laugh a minute and, and these you know three giants sort of going after the text in, in a really delightful way. So, yeah, some of the uh, upcoming shows you have are uh, sound to me uh, that they're going to be big hits. And uh, one of them has an interesting name. And I'm trying to understand how you derive this name. Once Upon a One More Time, which is a little tongue twister. It is original story powered by the music of Britney Spears. Tell us about how that name even came into existence. Uh, so it came it came up because Britney really wanted her music to be used in a Broadway show. She did not want it to be about her. She just believed that sort of the catalog, she's a, a huge lover of theater and she wanted to know that the catalog, you know, could could tell a new and original story. She always says that, you know, like what the, the way that she uses her music is to tell three minute, four minute stories at, and and could you link those together and make them something new? And it's actually one of the very first projects that she greenlit when she came out of her, her legal situation and sort of was in control of, of, of her own destiny, her own uh, intellectual property and all of that stuff. And so obviously she has this massive hit, Hit Me Baby One More Time, right? It's kind of the song that everybody knows in her catalog. But we knew that what we were going to tell was a sort of zany, feminist re-envisioning of quintessential fairy tales. And so... You know, once upon a time, of course, is the line that starts nearly every classic fairy tale uh, since time immemorial. Mm -hmm. So the two together, just once upon a one more time, just through that little Britney edge into it. It is a bit of a tongue twister, though. So I think that, like, you know, we almost always call it one more time. Once upon a is sort of the subscript just on the top of it. 
but it's a great show. It's so much fun. You know, it has a lot to say without ever, you know, again, kind of a hallmark of the work that I try to do is that it's not finger wagging. It's not preaching at you. It's just taking you to have a great evening, but also maybe, maybe making you think about the world and, and particularly what's going on in, in sort of the lives of young women throughout our world right now and trying to get to the point where we have genuine equality, uh, you know, across all genders. It's fun to take fairy tales, which are old, and so have some sort of confusing and problematic nature to them and flip that on its head, have a good time with it. Don't take it too seriously. And, and also send people out of the theater at the end of the show thinking a little bit about what they want for their daughters and their granddaughters. And well, Hunter, you know, Britney Spears, of course, is an international icon, and you're also involved with another uh, international icon and another show there, of course, the Neil Diamond musical, A Beautiful Noise, which I also saw, an incredible show uh, produced by one of your partners, Ken Davenport, is a lead producer there. And uh, so you're, you're looking at two international icons, which tells me that um, anybody from any country would want to come in and, and listen to this because they've heard the music and they know the artists. How much does that come into play in terms of, like, can I reach a broad diversity of international tourists. Uh, how does that come into play when choosing to produce a show? There's kind of two aspects to what we do uh, professionally in this business, right? One is how do we get art made that needs to be seen? The other is how do we run the business efficiently, right? And so if you kind of go through my career, and that's everything from the shows that I partner with friends and colleagues on that I'm not in charge of, the shows I just invest in to support the industry, the shows I'm lead producing myself, you would be hard pressed to find a real theme to what I do. And that's because the theme is portfolio theory. And the audience tells you what works. You don't tell the audience what works. And so sometimes if you want to do something like uh, Deaf West Spring Awakening, which is a, a show that's challenging to begin with, then to do a musical with half of your cast uh, from the deaf community makes it even more challenging. Sometimes you also have to do the Moulin Rouges of the world. And so they fit different aspects and they kind of keep a virtuous circle going. And, you know, you, we don't do anything that we don't believe in, love, or think we can do at the highest level, but there is a big difference between stuff that you expect to be deeply economically challenging, really tough, to produce from an artistic and an emotional context and the stuff that you do that you think you'll probably see on a cruise ship 15 years from now. And so in that commercial category, again, that doesn't mean non-artistic, but it's, it is broad based to your point. It can be seen by anyone all, all around the world. One of the best places to go are to internationally known musicians because music does not, it may be in English, but music does not know any language. Music is not bound to any particular type of person. I mean, it really does bring people together of all walks of life. And so when you have somebody like Brittany, who, you know, you've got teenage girls hearing it for the first time, you've got their older brothers that love it, you've got their mom that grew up on it, you've got the grandma that remembers the mom listening. I mean, like, they really become these multi-generational things. And for someone to become an international music star, they have to be really good at delivering to the mass public. I mean, they ha there has to be something universal about what they offer. 
You know, it's interesting because in my role, you know, as uh, an executive director of uh, New York City's uh, largest visitor magazine, City Guide, uh, I go back, uh, this is over 30 years ago, uh, with the Schubert organization. And at the time, uh, Philip uh, K. Smith, who was the executive vice president at the time, went on to be the chairman. And uh, I sat in his office there and he had this little show called Cats. And he said, (laughs) (laughs) I'll never forget his word. He says, kid. What can you do to fill these seats for me? <laughs> I'm relying on you. And we had this, uh, you know, long-term relationship for the length of the uh, the show. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, here's a show, which also, you know, you didn't need to to really speak the language. You know, you, you just knew the, uh, I can go there and see the characters perform. And, you know, it wasn't, because, uh, you know, some shows uh, like a play, you know, uh, is going to be challenging for some of the uh, uh, people coming from overseas who don't speak the language as well. So I, so I get what you're saying on that. So I want to get a little bit into uh, something that you have a, a passion for in making Broadway more diverse. And uh, I know you would like to see how uh, industry leaders uh, such as yourself can make it happen. First, can you uh, share what your definition of diverse is, Hunter, and what it actually means? Yeah. Um, so Yeah. So, you know, diversity obviously is a topic that we talk about in our entire culture um, at this point and something that we know is important, but defining it's pretty tough because people have very different worldviews about it. You know, the the thing that I always look at, and, and I say this all the time is, I want everything that I do to look like my city. I truly believe, like I, New York is- The melting pot. It's one of the great loves of my life. And it is, it's yeah. a melting pot. I mean, it's one of the brilliant parts of New York is you can have a $35 million apartment and there's someone in subsidized housing within a block of you. Isn't that amazing, right? Like Lincoln Center, right? Like right behind Lincoln Center, you got the subsidized housing and right in front of it, you got the multi-million dollar condos. So that's true. right. And, and also like, if you really want to, maybe if you're a billionaire in a bubble, it's different. But if you want to get anywhere in New York City, you're using the subway. And there are people going to their Wall Street jobs on that. And there are people hoping to find a job on the subway. And so we're forced to interact with one another in a way that just doesn't happen in most places in the world. And so one of the things that brings me so much happiness about the city is that it's so alive because it's represented by all these different types of people. And so when when I see the city reflected on my stages or in a boardroom or in a meeting or in a development session, then I feel like we're getting diversity right. But this, the second component to that, I remember sitting in a meeting, this is maybe going back seven or eight years, it's probably the point where I really realized that it was incumbent on us, meaning my office, my employees and peers, that we had to take a bigger uh, active role in, in the diversity conversation. Because I was in a room that looked very much like New York. There was young, there was old, there was black, there was white, there was all different walks of life in the room. And I remember thinking, oh, wait, hey, this is this is pretty good because, you know, we put some pressure on vendors and partners and said, you know, we if we're going to select to do business with you, we expect that you, you know, have equity and diversity and inclusion as a part of what you do. And so I was feeling kind of good about like, oh, OK, we're making a change. There's a difference here. They've delivered a diverse team. And, uh, and then I was sitting through the meeting and a couple of people were talking about different topics. And I had this moment where I was like, a lot of white people talking and a lot of people over 40 talking. And so my, I did this sort of like mental exercise. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't super intentional at the time. It just sort of popped in my brain. And I took the room 
and I ranked it from empowered to hourly, right? So somebody that could make an independent decision, make something happen Mm -hmm. at this organization, all the way down to somebody who was probably expected to say, yes, sir, no, sir, you know, what do you want your coffee, sir, kind of a thing. And it was a straight line from white men of a certain age, all the way down to young women of color. And I went, oh, wait a minute, the appearance of diversity is not enough. The reality of diversity in terms of types is not enough. You actually need functional equality where regardless of who or what you are, that it is, you know, as we're doing this on on Martin Luther King Day, and as Dr. King said, right, it is that the content of your character dictates the outcome of, of where you sit in life. And that's the American dream. The American dream is, right, we were all told this when we were growing up, anybody can grow up to be president. Why you want to be these days is a different conversation. <laughs> you know, the American dream is that what or who you are should never hold you back. What you can do is what should drive where you land in life. And so that's the definition we use, which is that the most competent, high potential person is always going to have the access to delivering what they want to deliver to the world, that we're going to open every door we can. And also the acknowledgement that that starts very early, right? Theater programs, for example, are far less likely to exist in lower socioeconomic neighborhoods than they are in wealthy private schools. So if you want to create equality in the industry, you actually have to start way, way, way before Broadway is even a glimmer in someone's eye. You have to start at what are the neighborhood programs? Is there a church theater that somebody's supporting? What are people that do have the ability to go to theater seeing on stage? Are they seeing themselves or are they only ever seeing reflections of, of people other than them? Like all of those problems have to be fixed. But when it starts to truly look and function like New York City, that to me is that's what diversity looks like. And obviously, you know, uh, this is not going to happen overnight. You know, it's a years long strategic process um, from leaders like yourself. Um, how do you see this all unfolding? I was talking to a friend about this this uh, over the weekend. We had a friend's birthday party and someone I hadn't seen for a while was asking about like what shows were working, what show wasn't shows weren't working. And, and I said, you know, particularly when it comes to shows about communities that Broadway has not represented historically or audience segments that have not been a natural part of our ecosystem historically, the, the, the metaphor to me is like, let's say you lived in a neighborhood for 20 years and you've never spoken to your neighbors, not once. Like you don't wave when you get in the car, that you just all coexist. And then one day your neighbors invite you over to a dinner party. You're not happy about it. You're confused, right? You're like, what's going on here? What, like, what petition do you want me to sign? Why are you mad about where I put my fence? Like no part of you naturally thinks maybe these people just want me in their home. Maybe they want to host me and get to know me and care about me we immediately go to the place where you're like, this is wildly different. So what's happening here? That is precisely what's happening with Broadway audiences. Broadway has acknowledged, thank goodness, that it has to tell stories that are more reflective of a broader group of people. That that's, you know, frankly, underrepresented communities have the most interesting stories. No, no, no one's ever been like the greatest story I've ever read or seen or heard 
was about this person who had no challenges in their life. That doesn't make a good story, right? So by definition, people who are fighting their way to equality, people who have to deal with uh, headwinds that not all of us do, are, are definitively the most interesting people ever to tell stories about. But when you haven't embraced that historically, and let's be clear, Broadway has not done nearly as good of a job as we should have in telling diverse stories. When you start doing it, no one understands why or whether you mean it. And so it may feel like political correctness or, or, or performative wokeness or whatever you want to call it. You have got to be prepared. You have got to be prepared to do it over and over and over. You got to invite those neighbors over every weekend until they realize you just want to get to know the neighbors. I was talking to a friend and, and colleague uh, who's a, a black producer this weekend. And he said, when he goes to even meetings in our industry, it's often that he's one of the only, if not the only black person in the room. And he's, he'll sometimes ask his colleagues uh, that aren't black, do you notice anything strange about that room? And he said, it's very rare that anybody says, oh yeah, you were the only black guy there. Or, you know, it's not as diverse as it should be. But he said to me like, but if you dropped any one of them in a room where they were the only one, they would immediately notice that something felt unusual, right? Mm-hmm. We don't tend to see outside of our own perspectives. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means that you are sort of oriented through your own worldview. And so, you know, what that made me realize is every single time someone from a community, whether it's a race, whether it's a culture, whether it's an ability standard, what, no, no matter whether who that person is, When they come to Broadway, they are historically coming into a house that's not theirs. They are the other, and they are aware that they are the other. And so until we get to the point where people realize that Broadway is the people's place, all people's place, we have to comprehend that, you know, I, I grew up a very dear friend of mine and I grew up, the only time I was allowed to sleep over at her house was if I would go to her Baptist church with her the next day. I think uh, <laughs> her, her father probably understood that I wasn't uh, as religious as he'd like me to believe. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a good way to try to inject it into me. And I remember being very aware of being the only white person in this Baptist church the very first time I went. By the fifth time I went, people recognized me. They were happy to have me there. They understood it wasn't some weird stunt. I was just my friend's friend. And I was there for the same reason that everybody was there. It's going to take time for us to get there. People will have to feel welcomed in a space that has historically not been for them. And so I think people that are in my position have to be prepared to do it over and over and over and over again. It's not, and I said the other day, it's not if you build it, they will come. It's if you build it, it doesn't work. So you rebuild it better. That doesn't work either. You rebuild it even better. It works a little bit like you, you just have to keep putting the thing out there. And, and eventually we will become what we believe. Eventually we'll, be, we'll become what we want to be. But it's turning a cruise ship around. I mean, you've got more than 100 years of an industry that, while beloved, has mostly focused on, you know, 75, 80% of the stories have been about one community. That takes time. Well, I got to give you a lot of credit because when you often think of theater, you Think of a show like The Producers, of course, which originally starred Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick. 
And uh, of course, uh, they're producing a springtime for Hitler. <laughs> they're doing anything to make a buck, right? Yep. Uh, and here you are um, actually willing to take a loss, uh, even on a show, according to the notes that I got from your uh, team, uh, until you keep uh, you know, finding a way to, uh, to see what works in terms of diversity. Uh, and that's very commendable that you're actually there not just to make a buck. You're there to put out, you know, uh, something that's going to include uh, the entire melting pot of a city of nine million people who all look very different. Uh, and and that's uh, that's pretty uh, amazing. And I want to thank you for that. Anything else you'd like to share for our audience today? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think it's really interesting because the world thinks of loss or gain typically in economic terms and none of us really live life that way right i mean it, it's rarely will you ask somebody like what's the greatest day you've had in the last month and they're like oh it was the day that i made the most oh i got three hours of overtime and i'm like <laughs> right what when you yeah. say what, what what brought you the most joy in the last 30 days they're probably going to tell you about a story and humans that impacted them in some way, right? Somebody that did something kind or somebody they were able to do something kind. Yes. And, and, and so, yes, as a whole, this is what I do for a vocation. So I do need to be able to feed my family doing what I do. But that doesn't mean that every project has to be measured in those terms. And so, ironically, I would much rather lose a bunch of money on a show that I learned a ton from, that I think touched the right people, that I thought pushed boundaries, I don't mind losing money on a show because I know that there will be another one that makes up for it someday. What drives me crazy is when you don't get the art right. When you really believe, because it's hard, it's live, it changes, it's ethereal. What's hard is when you land, you land the plane wrong. So losing money actually is, I mean, it's not preferable, but oftentimes you know it's statistically likely. But getting the art right and if you do get, you know, I, I did this great play. We were doing it. We, we were coming back from COVID. It's called Chicken and Biscuits. It's the first, it was in the round at Circle the Square. It takes place. Um, it's the funeral of a, of a Black family's uh, uh, sort of the, the patriarch of the family. So a lot of it takes place in a Black church. There's call and response in it. It's a comedy piece. It's like nothing Broadway's ever seen before. You know, the show did not make money on Broadway. It was also the second most produced show all of 2022. Wow. So, so, I mean, I think it had something like 13 regional productions and that, and, and the reason why is because there suddenly was a piece of contemporary content for a group of people that there's never any content for, right? It was, it was lives reflected that aren't normally reflected on the Broadway stage. And so you can take a loss, so to speak, and find your way all the way back to not just not a loss and forget economics of it, but really like filling your cup up with what the entire process was and the people that invited into your world and the people that did come to your dinner party and realize that it wasn't for ulterior motives. It wasn't about optics. It was because you wanted to know what they were like and you wanted to learn how to care about them and you wanted them to know who you were. And so when I think of shows where you're like, what have your biggest losers been? It never leads with economics. It always leads with, did we get the art right or not? And what keeps me up at night are the shows where it was a great idea and you didn't get it done. Mm, I like that. Well, our guest today has been Hunter Arnold, a prolific Broadway producer, a man with great heart, with great soul, and a pioneer 
in diversity. I want to thank you for sharing your insights today, Hunter. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you so much. If you would like to inquire about having Eli motivate your team, speak at your event, or coach you personally for massive success, email themotivationshow at gmail.com. That's themotivationshow at gmail.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.